we've had one Buddhist who's like, you know, why would I eat a couple thousand souls when I can only eat one soul? And it's like, well, if you count in souls, we will let you decide what you want to do. (laughs) I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. Well, here's a fun episode. I'm sure many of you by now have heard about crickets being this amazing, sustainable protein source. The first time I tried cricket chips, I was actually not impressed. This was around 2014, and eating bugs had just started becoming trendy. I remember getting a free bag of chips at some conference, and I'll be honest, those chips tasted like very dry corn tortilla chips. And I don't remember if they were Chirps or a different brand, but because my first impression was kind of meh, I sort of tossed the idea of crickets to the side. But recently, Jake Rudin from Out of Architecture, who I interviewed last year, told me he went to elementary school with Rose, who's one of the co-founders of Chirps. Now, Chirps is kind of a big deal. They're a Shark Tank startup that's backed by Mark Cuban and probably the leading brand of cricket chips. So naturally, I was curious to talk to Rose. What's the deal behind crickets? What makes them so sustainable? Where do you even get your crickets? And what happens if you get an outbreak? I had so many questions. Before our interview, Rose sent me some of their barbecue chips, and I swear to you, it was the only snack I wanted when I had COVID. Which is to say, they're delicious. In today's show, Rose explains why crickets, and bugs generally, are overlooked by the West, but they've actually been a staple protein for millions of people around the world. She also pulls back the curtain on their startup story and shares some of their biggest missteps as 22-year-olds trying to change the world and what she would do differently 10 years later. If you enjoy this episode, tell a friend. And if you didn't, tell me. You can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at farm.2.future. All right, on to the show. Here in the studio with the cricket master, Rose Wang, or Rose Wong. I grew up in Nashville, so it's Rose Wang, but technically Mm. it's Rose Wong. Yes. Yeah, right. I'm like, yeah, that Asian connection. (laughs) (laughs) So for those who have been living under a rock and haven't heard of chirps, can you give us a bite-sized history of how chirps came about and when you decided, like, this is it, like, I'm going to dedicate my time and effort to helping people eat bugs? Thank you, Jane. Yes. Um, Chirps was or is my first baby. So right out of college, my co-founder and I founded a company to make food out of bug protein. And the reason why we did this is because we both had experiences eating bugs abroad. Um, I was in China on the streets of Beijing. I saw a street vendor selling all sorts of different foods, including a fried scorpion, like a fried scorpion Mm. kebab. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. I think we've all seen it. And then uh, I didn't dare try it, but I've heard it's crunchy and can be delicious. That's exactly right. So I was dared. Otherwise, I wasn't going to do it. (laughs) I was like, fine, I'll try it. And I was so shocked by this exact reaction, which is I was so scared going in. But my first reaction is this tastes like shrimp, which really astounded me. Funnily enough, is a week later when I got back to school, my college roommate, Laura, sent me an article about why the world should be eating bugs. And Mm. I was like, this is insane. And so we started talking about it. And she's like, I had a fried caterpillar in Tanzania and I thought it tasted like lobster. I was like, wait, I had the exact same experience. This is so (laughs) weird. 
Um, All these bugs tasting like seafood. Exactly. Well, and so we started doing research because, um, and it actually makes sense, insects and crustacean are very closely related. They're both arthropods. So just really seafood Mm. on the land. We just have now decided to look at bugs as disgusting, but that is something that has been socially taught, right? We know back um, in biblical times that locusts were actually a source of food during the famine. And so essentially... This is not something we're born with biologically to, to be afraid of, like snakes. Bugs are actually naturally food sources that we've just been cultured out of. But still, all over the world, there are about two and a half billion people who do eat bugs regularly as a source of protein. And so that's when Laura and I got really intrigued. We're like, wait a minute, this is fascinating because uh, not mm. only is it already a food source, we never knew about it, but Fundamentally, it's one of the best protein sources out there, not only in terms of health, uh, nutritional profiling, but also just in terms of it is one of the most sustainable, if not the most sustainable protein source from at least an animal protein. So very, very exciting. Yeah. I mean, bugs definitely get a bad rap in the West. And I would say even with seafood. So I've been binging Selling Sunset. I don't know if you uh, watch yes, that yes, on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It's a great trash TV show. Um, but there's a scene where they're at a restaurant and Chriselle orders shrimp and it comes with the shell. Sure. And she's like, oh my God, like it, it's got the legs on it. I'm like, oh my gosh, what a whip. <laughs> like, like girl just peel it (laughs) have you never seen a real shrimp i feel like a lot of people are just uncomfortable with knowing the animal that their food comes from and then on the bug side what was that fear factor that was like a really popular tv show i feel like when i think of eating bugs that's like one of the first things that come to mind and so there's this negative aura around like oh you have to be dared to eat bugs. Absolutely. And and not only that, everyone tells me Snowpiercer, like, have you seen Snowpiercer? Which is very classist movie, but essentially like the big ending is that, you know, the lower class folks were eating food made out of bugs. I think it's just like Mm. all this, it's all branding. Because if you think about it, uh, escargot is branded well. It's the same category. That's so true. And so it's truly just marketing. Yeah. So that's exactly what you guys are doing. (laughs) So you mentioned crickets are a great source of meat protein. Mm -hmm. Say more about that. Yeah. So the very cool thing about bugs is that it's really good for the world. It's it's about the function that we fell in love with. So when it comes to insects, what hit us in the face most was the sustainability angle first. And then we discovered more about the health profile around animal protein. This all happened in about 2013 when the United Nations and the FAO came out with this like 200 page report aggregating all past studies on cultures eating insects, you know, the farming behind it, the cultural uh, adoption, et cetera. There's Lots of different ranges of numbers, but overall, we know, like in orders of magnitude, insects are just so much more sustainable for the world because it's about the closed loop system that insects are raised in. And that's how we need to think about food in terms of a full system, not just, hey, it takes less water. You know, that's like one element of sustainability. And so, with insects, what we saw was this world where you grow insects in cities because you don't need large pieces of land. They exist in anthills, right? Like essentially they're used to being in close mm. quarters. If you place them in cities, you can basically put a farm right next to your manufacturer. So the, the distance that food travels is much less. Insects need 
you know, 2,000 times less water. They need 100 times less land to grow. Than cows? Than or... cows, yes. Um, mm. So this is the main comparison with crickets and cows, is that essentially it takes about 2,000 gallons of water to make one pound of beef, but only one gallon of water to make one pound of crickets. So there is a stat around this where they found that the 2,000 gallons, 94% of that was actually from natural rainfall, and that only about 5% of the water used is groundwater or surface water. So just wanted to clarify that point. Awesome. Um, thank you. But I think in general, though, with these water stats is we don't really know where they're starting to do the measurement, whether it's, you know, from the food that is grown to feed the cows or is it? Yeah, yeah so which is generally included. Yeah, yeah. the grain that's used. Correct. Mm -hmm. But if we just look at in terms of, you know, whether it's 2,000, 1,500, maybe we don't know exactly because we haven't done that study. But if we understand in terms of just guts, you know, how cricket guts are made up versus cow guts. Fundamentally, the way that food is processed is just different. The size they grow is very different. The food mm -hmm. that they're fed on is different, right? And so all those elements are pretty good proof points that sustainability wise, we know for sure that to produce one pound of crickets, it just takes significantly fewer resources. And what's so cool mm -hmm. about bugs is you can actually take food waste. So think about like vegetables that no longer you know, you can't sell on the farms. These make really great cricket feed. And so the, the long-term vision is the entire system itself can be quite closed because you raise them in cities, you feed them on food waste. It only takes about four to six weeks in terms of life cycle for the crickets to grow up for us to eat them. Once you harvest them, you can take their frass, great miracle grow competitor in terms of fertilizer. And then hmm. you eat the crickets and you just take hundred percent of the cricket. There's no waste. And then that is your protein source. So in general, I think, you know, we can dig deeper into the numbers. And I think it's really important actually that we think about that generally in terms of the industry, in terms of measurement and accountability. But I think we had enough evidence to go on at that point. Like, yes, this is very much a better source and better way to grow food. Yeah. I mean, I think directionally, what's cool is that you guys are offering this alternative way to think about protein, right? Because I think biodiversity is a big challenge with our current food system where we've decided, okay, this one breed of chicken, this one breed of cows, one breed of pig, like that's all we're going to do and just scale that across the world. Yeah. Well, that's not very sustainable or, you know, good for ecosystems. And so I like this approach of like, hey, let's look at some other species that can serve our diets. I'm curious, this is a little bit black mirror, but you <laughs> mentioned bringing crickets into cities. And I'm just wondering like, oh man, what if you had a giant escape and all these crickets get loose? Like what happens then? Yeah. And you mentioned locusts earlier. I'm like, well, there was like a story of the locust plague, right? Have you done any research or, or has that even happened? Like with one of your facilities where crickets went loose? It's so funny how often we get asked this question. Uh, the, <laughs> I think uh, there's a lot of Hollywood, I think, that has to do with this. But um, in general, the crickets are grown from egg to adulthood in a very clean environment. Is that Essentially, when they get out, they most likely won't make it. It's mm. actually really hard to keep these crickets alive because they're so clean and sensitive. And so even to go into the farms, there are suits you have to wear. There's an entire procedure of cleaning um, just because cricket viruses tend to take out 
the entire population. You have to start from scratch. Oh. And so it's actually wonderful because built into the farming is essentially a quality assurance, which is amazing. Was that a challenge you guys had? Was cricket viruses? Yes, that was more of a challenge than cricket infestations was, you know, sometimes we get calls and say, hey, we can't get you the crickets. There was a virus. And unfortunately, you know, we have to start over. And so I think supply was one of the hardest when you're building a supply chain from the beginning. I think there's just not enough farms to help reduce that risk. And so those were a lot of the challenges early days is infrastructure. And so where were these crickets grown that you sourced from? Yeah. So when Laura and I first got into this, that was the big question is like, where do you get bugs? Like, where do we mm -hmm. even try to test this out? And so the only place we knew were pet food shops, um, essentially, oh. <laughs> because if you think about it, you know, bearded dragon eats crickets. That was actually great because what we didn't understand is that there was already infrastructure around farming because there was already a demand for it, right? With pet food, that actually is almost better because rather than start from scratch, it's actually pet food has very high quality standards. And so it was just mm -hmm. figuring out what the human standards were and then using the same farms, but like opening up a new lot. They had the expertise, et cetera. So it actually made entering the cricket market a lot easier. And that's part of why we chose crickets. But at first, yes, we started out with crickets um, from the, the pet food shop at Smart in Cambridge. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> Did y'all think about going into the pet food industry? You know, it's so funny looking back now. I really wish we had. Back then, we were just so principled in our belief that we have to tackle the hardest problem, which is human consumption. It's demand mm. that's really driving the, the sustainable, unsustainable practices, right? If we chose as humans a different form of food, then the supply chain would have to catch up. We were 22 and very optimistic <laughs> that we, that, like, that. <laughs> that's the way to go. As a more seasoned entrepreneur 10 years later, I would say that, you know, I think sticking to your principles is really important, but also listening to the market is very important. And so at the end of the day, food is very emotional. And so, yes, principally, you and I can say we will eat bugs, but if you have this emotional belief over the last 20, 30, 40 years that insects are gross, it's really hard to overcome that. We didn't know what we were doing in the beginning. We were educating and crafting a new industry, a new category, fundamentally mm -hmm. different from taking a market that's already there and iterating on it or taking a market share, but something that's similar-ish. Looking back now, I really wish we had diversified. Um, I think there's mm -hmm. lots of ways to, to test different channels. We could have done pet food in feed. Feed has done tremendous hmm. uh, with insects. Black soldier flies are great fish food. Hmm. Extremely sustainable in terms of the way that they're farmed. Black soldier flies literally eat anything and they convert it to protein, including mm -hmm. plastic. But we don't, you know, obviously the farms don't eat uh, black <laughs> soldier flies. Um, but that is also, people are looking at black soldier flies as waste. Essentially, like they can get rid of waste that we can't compost. Huh. So there's lots wow. of applications of bugs. And I think we were very focused, which is good, but I also wish we did more exploration early on. 
So one thing I'm curious your thoughts on is like, as a startup, you have the benefit of experimenting wildly and doing crazy things that a big corporation like, say, Frito-Lays cannot. Sure. But you're also limited in terms of scale and resources and time. And in the beginning, there was only two of you. So there's only so much you can do, yes. right? Yeah. Looking back now, if chirps were like incubated at a large company, what do you think you would have done differently? Yeah. Oh, what an interesting question. I think there's a couple things that are different. One, our times are different. Like in 2013, when we started Chirps, organic was still up and coming as a trend. The food market has fundamentally shifted in the last 10 years. Timing is better now than ever. I also think that the means in which we reach consumers is extremely different now. In the mm. past, influencers were still like the new thing. Um, and now yep. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, and crazy to think about. So crazy now they're all about. over. Yeah. We've got an infestation of influencers. Totally. <laughs> and so, yeah, ultimately, I think um, what's super fascinating about having lots of resources is experimentation you can do. And that's what I would have done so differently is you can experiment with different branding, different categories of food. But I'm very fascinated, I think, for Chirps to be a platform. We never thought about it as just pure human food insects. We were the bug platform. And in, in some ways we've extended to education for kids because we landed mm. on kids as one of our biggest consumer markets. And then mm. kind of realizing that bugs were a very great way to teach sustainability because it grabbed kids' attentions. Then they actually wanted to learn about sustainability in a fun way. You can dress up in fun costumes. Oh yes. Laura came out in a laundry hamper that was a uh, cricket <laughs> on Shark Tank. So yeah, we were, we did lots oh of uh, costumes. <laughs> That's so fun. Yeah. Well, Shark Tank. I mean, that was a huge milestone for you all. Like what kind of impact did that have on the business? Yeah, I think Shark Tank was a turning point, setting up essentially legitimacy and credibility. I think you don't need to do that always with certain you know products you're coming out with or businesses, but with bugs, there's a huge element of trust we have to win with consumers. And that was not something um, I think we understood as 22 year old um, entrepreneurs. <laughs> um, it's yes. like, how do you establish that credibility and that like, you can trust us. We've truly researched this and our standards are extremely high. You know, every batch is tested, et cetera, et cetera. But it didn't matter. Like it, I think back then there was just too much fear and we didn't know how to go about that fear. So Shark Tank really changed our journey where Mark Cuban, who is seen as generally, I would say, have a very solid head on his shoulders in terms of business. When he decided, mm -hmm. you know, I want to back Sherps, I think that changed the way that people saw us, that it was no longer a fun, frivolous, kind of insane project, but actually that there were legs uh, behind this. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. So to speak, <laughs> yes. Was Mark Cuban in involved in the business very much? Yeah. So, so... I am a huge, huge proponent of Mark Cuban. I think it's hard to believe that he is so involved in all these businesses. And it's because he does have a team behind him. It's not just him. Mm. Um, his team is amazing. We can talk to them all hours of the day. And so they were tremendous in helping us expand to retail and navigating um, a lot of the e-commerce online space because back then e-commerce was also very new. And so mm. having experts to help navigate that space was really important. I'm picturing a team of mini marks. <laughs> <laughs> they work yeah. really hard. Yeah, I bet.
You mentioned in the beginning some of your inspiration from traveling were like the scorpion and the fried caterpillar. Can you share what you found about bugs being part of other cultures' diets? Like what are some examples of like core dishes? And then how did you decide on chips as like the vehicle to deliver bugs? Yeah, I love this question because it's important to point out that this is not a new innovation. This is what we call reverse innovation, where essentially people all over the world have been relying on bugs as a, a means to live in terms of protein source. There's 2000 plus varieties of edible insects. I've only tried about 10-ish. So there's Ooh. like many more for me to go. What are your favorites? My favorite is grasshoppers. Chapulines. Oh. Mm -hmm. So, mm. and it's what really fascinating. Like? So I really wanted to do grasshoppers. I was like, these are the best. I love grasshoppers. They're delicious. But the problem is that they only lay eggs once a year versus mm. crickets it's year round. And so it's just in I terms see. of supply, it was much harder and more expensive. But yes, right. crickets in Mexico, amazing. And they're great in tacos. Um, mm. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You got to try that. I believe what Laura had was in Tanzania and was the wapani worm. That was what tasted like lobster. So it's essentially very like soft meat. And then if you cook it in butter, it tastes like lobster. Anything with butter really is great. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's a secret. <laughs> In Korea, there is silkworm pupae that is very popular in soups. They eat it crunchy. But yeah, like all over the world, there's all different types of insects. And if you want to go to one part of the world that's kind of central and you can try the largest variety, I would say Thailand. Thailand Ooh. is the capital of, I think, eating insects. Yeah, lots and lots that's available just on the streets, street vendors. Wow. I got to go to Thailand just for the food. Yes. All the bugs, the fresh fruit. Thailand's pretty great. Just hang out on the beach. Let me ask you more about the business itself. I guess you shared some of the stumbling blocks you guys had. Um, any other like big regrets or <laughs> I guess big failures that you guys learned from? I mean, <laughs> did we learn? <laughs> what if I was like, no, we were perfect. <laughs> I'd be like, that is a lie. <laughs> um, yeah, I, there are lots and lots and lots of learnings. Some of our my biggest regrets are just not doing a longer exploration period of like, hey, what category and like, how do we really enter different markets versus mm -hmm. just deciding on one? Although I think that with Chirps, that's one of the things I am most proud of is where most um, other insect companies then landed in the human food space, landed on like health and like the sports market. Mm -hmm. We found an audience with kids, which I actually think will be the long-term change, right? Like one of my mentors, he's saying that his eight-year-old son always asks for cricket protein in the house and is like, no, I demand there be cricket protein because it's important. Uh <laughs> wow. Because he likes the taste or because he knows about the sustainability? He does know about the it. sustainability, but I also think at that point, so it's our protein powder. Mm -hmm. It's formulated to taste delicious. <laughs> so that's a. Is it like chocolate flavored? Chocolate and vanilla. You can Ooh, get your choice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that definitely helps is that it's just like you, you can't take a slab of meat and just be like, 
eat it, right? Like how you cook mm. it, all of that really matters. And so I think that's what we really discovered with bugs is most bugs, what we've had in the US are freeze dried. So fundamentally they taste disgusting by the time you cook them. <laughs> <laughs> but if oh, you no. actually got them fresh and then knew how to cook with bugs, they're delicious. My favorite replacement for fries is actually waxworms. They're so delicious when popped. They're like popcorn and then you oh. spread some salt over it and you just yeah, so oh delicious. I gotta Google this. Waxworms, I've never heard of that. <laughs> it sounds a little questionable. I know. And and that's actually one of our Ooh, biggest issues. Like wax moth? Is that yeah, they're So we generally oh. eat um, the animals in baby form, in youngster oh. form. Yes. Same with crickets? So crickets are four to six weeks. So it's before they take on their full adult form, which is when they grow wings. Oh, I see. Yeah. So they're like teenagers. Yes. Fresh, mm. more fresh meat. <laughs> yeah. And then, okay. So with this protein powder direction, was that coming from just like watching the market and seeing the kind of sports and athlete positioning? Yeah. I think the protein powder actually came to us opportunistically where another cricket brand was like, we should collaborate. Um, and this could be a really interesting market. And so, yes, there's definitely a foothold in the sports nutrition market for protein powder. And we wanted to capitalize on that. But what we actually found on top of that was there were a lot of patients who were going through gut health issues. So for example, we had one guy who um, had gone through chemo where his gut was destroyed and essentially whey just like did not sit well with him. And soy had caused also all sorts of other issues. And so he tried cricket protein and it. He actually could help um, maintain his weight. And so there was just oh, a, wow. a lot of these examples where I think that's the part where we were really excited about bugs. It's like we, we enter it in a fun interesting angle from branding, but in actuality, like if you just look at the, the protein complex of crickets, it's an animal protein. It has more B12 than salmon, you know, more iron than spinach. In terms of bioavailability, you actually process more of cricket protein than you would beef protein. And so in general, it's much easier on your gut health. So I think Nature, which is one of the top scientific journals in the world, published a couple of years ago, a random controlled double blind trial on cricket protein. And the, I think the N was quite small. There's like 30 folks or so, but essentially they looked at the effect of cricket protein on gut health. And so they, not only did they see an improvement in gut health, but also they actually saw a reduction in inflammation and they wanted to, to do further studies. So it's pretty crazy what crickets can do. And so it's like, okay, I don't think we should limit ourselves to the sports market because oftentimes that's seen as a fad. Can we go mm. and dig deeper into the roots of our culture and change the way that we think about food? Wait, that's crazy about the gut health piece. Do you know what aspect of crickets does that? Is it like the fiber or they, do they have probiotics? I unfortunately do not have the answer. Um, <laughs> I wish I knew more. My, my guess is that, so crickets just have a ton of macro micronutrients hidden. And so I'm guessing that it's some combination of 
the interaction effect. And we just don't know specifically what is causing this. And I think that's where the science needs to go. And we need actually more funding in academics to do more research on entomophagy. It, What's that? It's the, the science of eating of insects. So that's like completely oh, a new field yeah. that isn't being studied. If anyone, you know, <laughs> is going to college these days and wants to find <laughs> a new uh, niche market for themselves, I think there's a lot <laughs> to be explored in this space. <laughs> My brother is starting college very soon. <laughs> We're go. many, many years apart. Yeah, he actually got accepted into a food program, which I don't know if he'll actually go, but that could be a path for him. There you go. Study crickets. The study world bugs. expert on the on entomophagy. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So, like Asian moms here, like deciding his future path. <laughs> yeah, talk your parents. <laughs> Exactly. I'm curious, how have vegetarians and vegans responded to chirps? Love that question because Laura is a <laughs> vegetarian, although now rebranded as an oh. entotarian. Um, Ooh, that's a new one. Yes, yes, yes. The other part of this is we like making up words. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so ento for being insect and then Aryan. But essentially, we let them decide, right? Every person is vegetarian and vegan for slightly different reasons. And so our belief is we're going to present the facts and let you decide depending on your own principles, if you think bugs are kosher or not for your diet. We've heard lots of things. So we've heard of vegans who eat oysters because essentially mm. oysters are so unsentient in a way that it, it passes their bar. And so it just depends where your bar is. Crickets, for example, they have a very limited central nervous system. We know they don't have pain receptors, which means they don't feel pain the way we do, but we just don't know what that means otherwise. So I'm not going to say they don't feel pain. I just don't know uh, if it's different. And so I think there's like very many different angles to look at it. We're going to present the facts. And then the, you know, like the way that we process crickets and, and kill them is we just put them to sleep, right? So it's just very humane. Mm. Um, they're cold blooded. We put them in the freezer. They just go to sleep. Oh yeah. I think that's been very important for us is to really understand the morality behind the way that we treat all living creatures um, and plants in many ways. It's really hard to understand what pain or sentience is. Trees, for example, like mother trees will send more nutrients to their babies because they'll understand the network and who their tree spawns are. Yeah, uh, through the mycelium network underground. That's exactly so crazy. right. Yes. And so, yeah. you know, where do we draw the line? We'll let you decide. That said, we've had one Buddhist who's like, you know, why would I eat a couple thousand souls when I can only eat one soul? And it's like, well, if you count in souls, right. we will let you decide what you want to do. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's a really interesting angle. One of our vegan listeners who I actually went to elementary school with, we had a conversation about veganism and whatnot. Apparently on the official vegan association website, they have a definition of like, you are vegan only for ethical reasons. Mm. The secondary reasons are environmental. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. So I I'm curious if he listens to this, whether he'd be open to trying chirps. Yeah, I if you do, please call us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 1-800-CHIRPS. Yeah, that's right. Eat bugs. That's actually the perfect phone number. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Go claim it. Go claim it now. Right now it goes to an um, exterminator. <laughs> oh my God. I know. It's actually the exact bugs. opposite. Anyways, we can move on. <laughs> 
didn't exactly answer your question before, but I'll answer it now about where I get my crickets. Um, Just remember that too. Yeah, I was like, oh yeah. (laughs) Um, But when we started with the pet food, we started in farms in the U.S. that were supplying for, you know, PetSmart, et cetera. But then as human cricket farms were starting to get developed, one of the things that I felt very uncomfortable with being Chinese is that essentially we're cutting out a lot of the folks who basically had been eating bugs this entire time. And just suddenly, because we Westernized it, don't include them in the supply Mm -hmm. chain didn't make sense. We actually made a huge concerted effort to look for suppliers in Southeast Asia, the huge capital of bug eating in general. This has been very much a part of their culture for generations. This isn't something new. So that's been really cool. Actually, one of the the most interesting experiences is we tried to start an urban farm early days. Oh, wow. Yeah. In In Cambridge? In Youngstown, Ohio. So, So it's like a Detroit where essentially car manufacturing went completely dead and you have all these warehouses and buildings that are perfect cricket farms. The thought was, can we go and vertically integrate and build our own farms and actually show the vision of what we're trying to do. I think that was really hard for us at the beginning to vertically <laughs> and we're like, okay, you guys farm, we'll work with you. We'll we'll build out yeah. the, the food supply. But I think those were some of the coolest projects that we were able to embark on. But I think the other thing is just like being in the food world. When you're in the cutting edge of food, you get to meet other really interesting cutting edge food companies. Some of like the most memorable ones were folks who were trying to use jellyfish powder. There was like Mm. an overpopulation of jellyfish in some parts of the world. They were predators and they needed a way to get rid of the jellyfish. Jellyfish hold a lot of moisture. So the question is, can you make your baked goods more moist by using jellyfish powder? Super interesting. Yeah. There was another company we saw that, so Laura's a redhead and she's like very obsessed with skin, uh, like sun care because it actually hurts. And so at Mm. um, Expo West, which is like one of the biggest natural food shows in California, there was a brand that was doing drinkable sunscreen, which I don't know. What? I don't actually. I have seen like sunscreen pills, but I have no idea how that works. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think like we actually looked into the science afterwards and we're like, this feels a little kind questionable. Of yeah. But I, when you said the moisture part, I was like, oh, that could replace like hyaluronic acid in skincare because it sucks in moisture. I would beta test that. Oh, Jane, you know, <laughs> I don't have a job right now. Just kidding. <laughs> That. I'm obsessed with skincare. Oh my God. We could do a whole nother podcast just about skincare. Yes. Um, so I do want to ask if you made any discoveries around sustainable packaging, because I'm sure that was a big part of the supply chain yeah. and just deciding how to pair your branding with the actual product. Yes. So sustainable packaging was a big dream of ours. Um, and I say that because there were a lot of barriers to us implementing sustainable packaging, which I think people should know. And that's the thing about food is that there's actually a lot of things you have to weigh. You have to weigh cost, you have to weigh shelf life, you have to weigh travel because essentially chips are air packed. And so over certain mountainous areas like Denver, bags tend to burst. So there's just like all these different elements that I didn't know mattered when you're manufacturing um, a food product that you have to keep shelf life. And so our goal was, can we have a fully sustainable brand from, you know, beginning to end? And the answer is we could, but then the chips would cost like 
$50 a bag, which would then mm. go against the first mission is, can we get people to even try bugs? And then once right. we got them excited, then we'll start growing the brand and then actually investing in other parts of the business. And so I think that the way to think about it is it's important to have a long-term vision and have all the right principles, but also know short-term strategies you have to take to get to the next step. All we really need is Frito-Lay to go to compostable packaging, and then it's available for everyone at the low right. price. And so that was what was really frustrating is we actually hired a packaging engineer from Frito-Lay to join Chirps and oh, he wow. ran our operations. So we did we look into sustainable packaging, but the problem was we couldn't find one that was not cost prohibitive and would essentially keep our shelf life long enough. Um, because for chips, mm. we were looking at about nine to 12 months because what ends up happening is three months before your expiration date, you're out of the store warehouses. They don't put you on shelves. So you really have six months. Oh. Those are the types of things that we had to really think about. And we just didn't have the means to go with compostable packaging today. And where did y'all distribute retail-wise? Yeah. So before the pandemic, we were in about 1,500 stores, mostly like mm. mid-country to West Coast, which makes sense. And then some um, natural food stores on the East Coast, because we did start out in Boston. And so like Cambridge Naturals was our first store in Porter Square. Oh, yeah. yes. They're so Do they wonderful. still carry you? I think so. I know things got really crazy during the pandemic. We really struggled in retail because we're a discovery product. You walk past it and nobody was discovering at grocery stores oh, no. during the pandemic. It was like one person per store, right? And then like you had to go in and out. We had a really hard time staying in retail at that time. So we actually decided to pull out and we're rebuilding in retail this year. But essentially we were mostly in natural food stores and then we were in uh, vitamin shops. We had just gotten into Barnes and Noble and then like mainstream stores, including all of Kroger's West Coast stores, oh. which would be like King Supers, Ralph's, et cetera, et cetera. So we were in a lot of those stores on the West Coast. And then of course, yeah. e-commerce with online and Amazon. But yeah, I would say that uh, the pandemic was rough on us. Yeah, sounds like it. Any plans to hit up Whole Foods? Yes. Okay. So it was really interesting the whole time that Whole Foods basically didn't want to take a stance on crickets. In the beginning, they were very nervous about it. And then we heard that there was a brand that did get into stores and weren't completely transparent about where they got their supply. And then thus that made Whole Foods very nervous. And then during the acquisition with Amazon, they didn't want any risks. And so essentially mm -hmm. it was just around that time. But I do think that Whole Foods at this point is loosening things up. So this year when we go back, I think very much like we're looking at Sprouts, Whole Foods, et cetera. Yeah, because I feel like that would be the perfect pairing. I hope to see chirps there very soon. Me too, we're working on it. <laughs> Sweet. Do you want to talk about your personal journey of transitioning out of Chirps and how you made that decision? Yeah, I would love to. You know, I think a lot of the details in this interview, you can tell I no longer have the most up-to-date information, like what stores we're in. And that's just because I left the business full-time three years ago now. The main reason was because I was feeling like I was hitting a ceiling in my own growth um, as a leader of the business. I had started it as a CEO at 22, Prodigy. No, not at all. I think the whole point is that there, you can't hack leadership. Like, there are not very many good 22-year-old mm. CEOs. And if you hear about <laughs> it, it's a myth. And you're not hearing about right. the problems. You can't hack like maturity, right? You have to experience mm. what it's like to hire somebody 30 years older than you and 
misalign expectations on they know what to do with ten hundred million dollars. They don't know what to do with ten thousand dollars. And that was just my fault. I didn't I didn't know how to communicate that. And so there's just a lot of mistakes I had made. I think that's what I felt was if I could hire the team to take trips forward, to bring it to the next level that I can't, that would be actually the best case outcome. And then meanwhile, I need to go and basically level up, right? Like gain some maturity and wisdom and, and have somebody I can learn from. And so that was the path I embarked on about three years ago. And I had- Was that a hard decision to make? Oh yeah. I mean, I think, so my co-founders wrote me letters on my last day I mean, they're such good friends too. And it took me two years to open those letters. I just like didn't <gasps> want, Oh, even though I talked to them, I was like, I haven't read it. Yeah. <laughs> like all the emotions yeah. in, the box, yeah. in an envelope. Yeah. No thanks. Oh. I don't like dealing with emotions, <laughs> which was part of the problem. I mean, kudos for having that self-awareness to step back and be like, okay, the business can be better served by, you know, a more experienced or professional whatnot team. And that you can take the opportunity to still grow in your career. Thank you. I really think it's about the people you have around you. If you have an echo chamber, if everyone tells you you're great, you'll reach a ceiling where you don't understand um, where you're not great. And I think that was the thing Mm -hmm. that I feel very grateful for is I had a lot of real people in my life who were like, Rose, sit down. We're going to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Intervention time. Yeah. (laughs) Good. You need that. Hopefully not too often, but yes, yes, (laughs) exactly. Any plans to go back into the food industry? Yes, absolutely. So where I felt I wanted to learn more was like learn from other industries and take the next X years to get my own education. My goal has always to go back to social impact. And one of the biggest theses I have is around food sustainability, obviously. Absolutely, I wanna go back. And not only do I wanna go back though, I I want to work on more systemic change, even thinking about like mechanisms of fundraising, right? Like Hmm. there's only three types of funding, like venture, debt, grants, that's it, Yeah, you know? And so to me, it's, how can I enable many more people to do what I'm doing rather than just in one thesis? And I think that's the part where for us in food, it was never about only eat bugs. Like when in our lives do we only eat one thing? Like I'm pretty sure I don't eat one thing even in one bite, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is the ideal, but there is freely the banana girl. That's right. If you stumbled on that. force of nature. Sure, sure. There's always (laughs) exceptions. But yeah, I think ultimately we saw it as there's 9 billion lives um, and 9 billion mouths to feed in the next 30 years. And so we have to craft out so many different new categories of food. And so how do I enable more than just one thesis to exist and thrive? So are you envisioning what a fourth funding structure would look like? Potentially. Does it involve NFTs? No. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. Yeah, no. As we come to a close, any advice for food entrepreneurs out there? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things I would say is really understand what metrics of success are. There's a lot of vanity metrics. Like we got a thousand signups, right? But like what do signups really mean versus we got a thousand conversions, right? And so if you focus your attention on the right metric, that actually helps frame your business. I think for food entrepreneurs, I think the best thing about food, you know, compared to lots of other industries is how community driven it is. People are in food Mm -hmm. because they're passionate. 
They have a fundamental love for not only the like actual experience of eating, but the entire system of how food is grown. And then I think the culture around what eating together means and like what that sharing mm. looks like. And so I actually really miss that in the food industry coming into tech where mm. things are less open source and sharing versus I think in food, every single other entrepreneur wants to help. And so I think don't be protective, you know, go out there, talk to people, get to know people, understand where the mistakes are, what to watch out for. Like, I know how to help you get into Kroger. It's very specific, but it's like, you have to read a 300 page book. Why not just call a friend? Right. And so there's like all these mm. things where we can help each other. And I think that the food industry is one of the best ones to enter because you really feel like you're joining something larger than yourself. Ooh, I love that. Food is such a fleshy industry, right? Oh, like we're that. talking about bodies. We're talking about like yeah. meat space versus virtual space and not like meat necessarily as animals, but <laughs> you know, we're in the fleshy space. Yes. Yes. That's right. <laughs> And that's a wrap. Go try some cricket chips for yourself at eatchirps.com and their children's book, Eat Bugs Project Startup. Be well, my friends.